Shelbourne Knee Center podcast, episode 26, and uh, I'm Dr. Benner, and I'm here with Scott Bauman, my uh, co-host, uh, and for tonight's episode, we have a really good episode and a, and a great guest planned for tonight, so thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. We have a Shelbourne Knee Center podcast Facebook and YouTube page as well. You can email us at uh, the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. In order to make sure you don't miss any of our content, make sure you hit the like button and subscribe, and uh, be, feel free to leave us a review if you uh, have a re- good review for us to have behind for people who are new to the podcast so they can learn more about it as well. And speaking of content, if you missed our episode from last week, episode 25, we had another total knee topic. That one we were discussing patella resurfacing at the time of total knee arthroplasty, where Dr. Benner kind of went through his thoughts on that and how he swung from uh, doing mostly patella resurfacing and, and now uh, is more selective on it. And we covered a, a research project that was presented at the academy meeting as well as the CSM physical therapy meeting. And tonight we have uh, another total knee topic. We're talking about smart technology and total knees. And with us tonight from Hospital of Special Surgery uh, in New York City is Dr. Fred Kushner. And uh, Fred has over 30 years of experience as a uh, knee-only specialist surgeon. He's the past chairman of the Division of Orthopedics at South Southside Hospital in Long Island and formerly was at the Insall Scott Kelly Institute. And that's where I did my fellowship. So Fred's one of the one of the, the mentors that trained me at ISK, and uh, we're glad to have him. He's a member of the prestigious Knee Society and brings with him pretty extensive experience, not only in patient care, but also uh, with the relationships and technology and total needs. So Dr. Kushner, welcome to the SKC podcast and thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Rodney. Glad to be here. So Dr. Kushner currently is serving as the chief surgical officer at Canary Medical, which has produced uh, the world's first smart total knee implant. And that's what we want to talk about tonight, uh, as smart technology and total knee replacement and specifically uh, the smart implant. So, uh, Fred, how did you become interested in smart tech and joint replacement? And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, my original connection to Bill Hunter, who's our CEO, he was the CEO of Angiotech who made the quill suture. And as you know, I've always been concerned about bleeding in knees and how to make uh, people recover quicker from arthroplasty. So I became a consultant for Angiotech, and I helped them introduce the quill suture to the orthopedic community. And Bill and I became friends, and, uh, you know, his time at Angiotech ran its course, but he and I stayed in touch. And about 10 years ago, he called me up and said, Fred, I'm coming to New York. I have an idea. And when he talked about Angiotech, was putting drugs on stuff, just so you know, uh, Angiotech made the first drug-eluting heart stent, which was the most successful medical device ever released. And uh, he met me for dinner, and he says, "Fred, I got an idea." Tell us a little bit about that. What what did he? How did he initially pitch this to you, and uh, how did he originally get you to buy into this? Well, he said about three billion dollars a day, and maybe he just made up that number. Um, uh, cost of medical devices is put into people every day, and it does nothing. And he said, someday we're going to look back and say, you spent $4,000 in metal and plastic, and that's all it did. And his idea was, let's go ahead and make a, put sensors on stuff. So his old company was drugs on stuff. This was sensors on stuff. So we picked knees because, number one, I'm a knee surgeon. And number two is, it's got big real estate. And that's where we started. So you mentioned that's where the journey started. Tell us a little bit about that early going and, and how that led to the start of Canary Medical and, and how that led to Persona IQ. Sure. So for 10 years, we went to the academy and we came home crying. Um, we pitched the idea. We told people our thoughts and it kind of was foreign. Um, you know, putting sensors on medical devices, putting batteries on the knee itself. Um, we met with every major company. We flew down to several of them all across the United States. And at first, uh, people were, were skeptical, as you can imagine. 
but then COVID hit, telehealth shot off the off the screen, and suddenly it wasn't such a strange idea. And Zimmer, fortunately, Ivan Pornos, who's now the CEO, had the foresight to say, hey, you know, data is king. This is going to collect data. We'll be able to do better joint replacements with more data. And he uh, embraced the technology and signed a relationship with Canary Medical. Now, back to the skepticism before COVID. You mentioned that there was this skepticism when you pitched it to these companies. What were some of those things? What were what were the feedback that you were getting from the other companies? Well, you know, some companies, it's, it's, a lot of it is companies sometimes don't want to invest in new technology. They say, you go ahead and develop it, and then we'll buy it later. That's one philosophy. Others didn't get how they were going to make any money off of it. Others uh, just were afraid of a failure because, remember, many uh, leaders in arthroplasty companies, they're afraid of a failure. Okay, They don't want to spend a lot of money on a project and lose because our jobs, jobs are pretty stable. But often if they have a failure and lose a lot of money, their job may be in jeopardy. So I guess there's a whole variety of reasons. It was new. The concept wasn't proven. People were afraid to invest in new technology. Would it be accepted? Those are probably some of the things. And then once you got an industry partner that was interested and in, uh, and had an appetite for this, how did it progress on from that point to actually getting to market? And uh, tell us a little bit about that as well as uh, the, the product itself, Persona IQ. Sure. So, you know, basically Clinary Medical makes a stem that hooks to the Persona A, that's Persona IQ. Inside this stem extension, 58 millimeters long, it has the battery, which is made with pacemaker type technology and accelerometers and gyroscopes. And that's kind of the device. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, we would have liked that to have been attached to any company's uh, prosthesis so you can compare results across the board. But obviously, people aren't going to invest and allow you to use it in a different prosthesis. But Zimmer embraced the technology. Other things happened. The FDA gave us a breakthrough status. In fact, the FDA gave us breakthrough status not only for knees, but also for hips and shoulders. They realized this is where the world is going, and they actually were right. If you look around, there's AI, 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 data, data, data on many, many medical medical devices. And the FDA knew this was coming, and they embraced our technology and uh, gave us expedited review. How, how exciting was that for you when you got that phone call that that was going to happen? And uh, why do you think the FDA, um, were you surprised at that, I guess, that the FDA had that, had that kind of foresight? Not surprised, because... Despite the stories you hear about the FDA being like uh, other government branches, they were actually very helpful. They helped guide us and encourage us to do the ex expedited review. And they also guided us to make sure we included all the stuff that was needed to get a rapid uh, approval. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's new technology. These are things that they wanted to see. And uh, they actually were a partner in guiding us through the process. Now, going back to the product itself, you, you mentioned data is king, and everybody's really searching to get as much data as possible. You mentioned accelerometers and gyroscopes. What was the initial thought on what parameters to collect with technology like this in a total knee replacement? That's a great question, Scott, because if you look at our first slides and our first presentations, we were putting all kinds of sensors in the device itself. The problem was that was going to be very cost prohibitive to make all those SKUs. Um, we suddenly came up with the idea, let's build one device that can be added to, you know, to any of the knee replacement sizes or any of the polyethylenes. And that's where we came with the stem. And then we also did our, our due diligence and we found out the kinematics that you can collect with this device. You can infer mathematically what the range of motion is. And then also there's some good data out there about how gait parameters can predict how well patients are doing. Uh, it's a good substitute for uh, patient report outcome measures. And you can actually even judge patient satisfaction by how normal their kinematics are. So it wound up being quite a good source of information that can translate to clinical care. 
Now, Dr. Kutcher, my, my background is physical therapy before I got into the research side here at the Shelbourne Knee Center. So uh, as a physical therapist, we're always looking for the parameters and trying to get accurate range of motion, uh, whether that be in the clinic and, and definitely at home or something of that nature, as well as gait speed and how, how much they're walking and what that kinematics looks like. There are some uh, more surface-based products out there, you know, as, as simple as a pedometer. And everybody has a you know small computer in their pocket with an iPhone now, and you're able to track steps and things. But you know, obviously, that's not really a competitor of yours. But how is this different? How do you think it's better than some of those other more surface-based technologies? Sure. So one of the first things uh, that we did is we bought 100 Fitbits, and we asked patients, if you want a free Fitbit and want to be part of a study. So these patients were incentivized. And when we looked at the use of the Fitbit, one-third didn't even use it. So they said they were interested, wanted to be in a study, never put the damn thing on, okay? The other ones did it incorrectly. They didn't charge it. They didn't wear it. Uh, so out of 100 patients, maybe 30 used it close the way they were supposed to. And there are other studies as well that show that just when you have to put it on, compliance is poor with wearables. The other thing was while we are doing all this, I gave some lectures in South Africa and was able to break away and go to a safari. And it was amazing. I sat on my butt the whole day, but I did 24,000 steps. The reason is on your wrist is not a great substitute, you know, uh, for what's actually going on with the knee. So, you know, it's data from the device itself is certainly superior and compliance is like 96%. If they unplug the base station, it's probably the only thing that's going to happen or if there was a uh, failure, um, but we can get you a new base station. And it collects data for almost 20 years. So you're not going to have that wearable and wear for 20 years this actually will generate data. It stores it for two or three weeks if you're on vacation, automatically downloads from the base station. And this is just version one. We'll improve our base station as you know, we already started doing that, and we'll improve the things we can collect going forward. So as I'm sure you've heard several times in the past, the, the, the first reaction that you know people who haven't been exposed to this kind of technology and joint replacement implants before, I'm sure the immediately the immediate answer is so. So what, Fred? Why do we? Why do we really? Do we really need this? Is this really necessary? And uh, am I going to change something about my implant to put this thing in here and get all this kind of data that I've never had before? And of course, everybody thinks I have great results. What do I need this data for in the first place? Uh, how, how do you respond when you get those kind of inevitable inevitable questions? from uh, people who are skeptical about it when they first hear about it. I'll ask them, what does a robot add for you? Okay, many studies out there that, what does a robot do? It might make your x-rays look a little better, may get rid of some outliers, but are, how many great studies are out there that show a robotic knee replacement is better than a non-robotic instrumented knee, okay? Um, you can always be skeptical of technology, but if you look and see that we have over 1 billion data points last time I checked, okay? And by having these data points, you can look at some of the literature. If you look at some of the work out of the Rothman Clinic, because we're all trying to keep costs down in physical therapy, no offense, Scott, it can be expensive, okay? And not everybody needs formal physical therapy. But one of the big things that the Rothman paper by um, Matt Austin, um, I believe, was, he was the main author, and the conclusion was, yeah, you don't need physical therapy, but you have to identify the people that are doing poorly. Otherwise, everything you gain, you lose on the few people that don't. And this actually gives us, now that we have over a billion data points, if you look at actually at the site of what we collect and you see how you can use it, you collect enough data points that you have recovery curves. So every Tuesday I log on, I look at my patients. Uh, we have a sort and filter feature, which tells me patients that are less than 20%. Fortunately, I'm a good surgeon, so the little red box doesn't show up on many of my patients. And I can call them and say, wow, what's going on? You're not walking very much. Your range of motion is, isn't so well. And I can adjust for physical therapy or I can sit there and adjust their pain medicines, and I can identify those that are starting off a little bit slow. 
And we know that it's that early range of motion that predicts how well people are going to do with their knee replacement. And anything I can do to intervene early and make patients happier, perhaps we can get knees closer to how hips are doing. We, we know hips are wow and knees are ow, and 20% mm -hmm. of knees aren't happy with the way they're doing. So the more information we have, hopefully we can improve that. It's really one of the points that I was hoping you would bring up, and, and I agree with you on that. It's kind of one of those things that we don't know what we don't know. You know, do we need this now? Are we doing okay without it? Well, yeah, you could make an argument that we don't have to have this, but that there there are lots of things that have come up like that over time that, uh, that, that you know, prosthesis design improvements. You know, we worked on a study when I was there, uh, when I was there at ISK about total knees in young people, and we found out that the people who had the IB2s, the modularity that we all have in every implant system, did far worse than the people who had IB1s that had no modularity. And if we would have thrown modularity in the trash there in the in the mid-80s when that when that initially came about, I think that would have been bad for the that would have potentially been bad for for you know orthopedics and in, 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 in total knee replacement in general. So uh, I think that's the interesting thing about it is we don't really know what direction this is going to take us. Um, and you know while I haven't picked up persona IQ yet, I have picked up robotics and I've and I've done about 200 robotic assisted total knees now. And I and I and I don't want to go back because the amount of data that it gives me, I think I can use in ways that I didn't really realize before. And it has changed the, the resections that I make, the releases that I make, the alignment I'm able to achieve. And and I think in the long term, it's gonna it's gonna show us that that uh, that it's a positive thing. But you're right, at, at that right now, we don't necessarily have that data. And I think that data is probably going to emerge around the same time that the information from smart implants and things like that are going to emerge as well. So uh, I still think it's an interesting thing to look at. It, even though we don't know how that's going to play out in the future. Well, I can I can monitor my patients and see how they're doing and intervene. But as a research pool, if I ask what's the ideal way to put a knee replacement in, and I ask a group of 10 surgeons, we get 10 different answers. Is it mechanical alignment? Is it mm -hmm. kinematic alignment like you're talking about next week? Is it uh, limited kinematic alignment? Um, but my question is, who knows? You're a tall, skinny guy. I'm a short, muscular guy. Um, Okay, I'm a little chubby. But anyway, um, the, the point is that our goal, the, the goalpost for you and me might be different, and we don't know that. So I think we're, you know, we're getting close where somebody's going to get the preoperative data, get the interoperative from the robot, you know, and it was Zimmer will be the Rosa robot, and then the postoperative, and we're going to see who has the best kinematics. And when you did A, B, and C, that was the best combination for this person, but A, B, and C was better for the different body habitus or gender and so forth. So that's, that's going to be coming. Speaking of data, earlier you said a billion data points, and I don't care what you're talking about. Anytime you hear a billion, your ears are going to perk up a little bit. So that's bu -bu -bu billion with a B. Instead. With a B, that's right. Yeah, well, so we like to go one billion. <laughs> it's probably even more now. That was several months ago. Well, run us through. Obviously, you don't have to go through a million data points, but what does that look like to collect a billion data points? How many patients is that collected on? What intervals are you collecting that at? You mentioned a base station. Is it yeah. does it I mean, collect so, everything once a day and it, and it runs an average total? What's that data collection process look like? All right. So it, it, to make a battery that last twenty years, you can't collect it every day for twenty years. So you collect every day at at three different times during the day. Okay, and it, it judges to when to collect by purposeful steps. And then it stores it on the device for about two weeks, and then it downloads it every night at the base station, which can sit somewhere in the patient's room, usually under the bed. And it just automatically downloads and collects. Now, when you have all these data points, now you can get what we call recovery curves. So we know what the average is. Now we're able to divide it. So we know for age, you know, less than 65 and over 65, what the mean is. 
We know for gender, okay? And we can even go into to, to BMI. Um, but we know what the average is in, in general, it's a recovery curve. So when I log on and look at my list of patients, I can see how they are compared to everybody else. Uh, you know, it's blinded. You don't know who the other people are. You don't know who the surgeon is. Uh, but you can actually see how they are in, in relation to everybody else. And that's how you judge how they're recovering. How many of these have been implanted so far, Fred? How many have you done in your own experience? And how many have been done worldwide? Yeah, I, I can tell you how many I've done. I'm approaching 50. I don't know the, the worldwide number, and that's a bit pr pr proprietary. So even if I knew it, I wouldn't tell you. I would have to kill you. But uh, I'm approaching 50, and uh, I think I got another two this week. And, and what do you feel like early lessons have you learned from uh, from what you from what you found? Is there are there different trends that you feel like you're seeing now? Is there anything that you've looked at in the data that you've uh, that you've uh, accumulated so far uh, that you think, wow, I did not expect that, or I didn't think I was going to see that, but that's what but that's what I found. Well, the first thing is when I got the data, it was pretty raw, and uh, I, I could infer because I had access to you know you know discuss with the data scientist David Lee, who's you know, one of our lead scientists lives right next to my office in Manhattan. So he's gone over the data and educated me. But then later on, when the data points, we generated these recovery curves. So now I can actually see how people are doing compared to everybody else early on. So I guess the best thing I've learned is how to best use the data. Log on, look for the outliers, call them and see how they're doing. If you're doing well, then that's fine. And patients like to see the information as well. I mean, today, I have to just remember who has the persona IQ because they love going over the data and seeing how they compare to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's the best way is being able to sit there. Now, I've changed the way I practice. I used to get the x-rays on my second visit. Now I get it on my first visit. The reason being is some of my patients come from long distances. So if you're doing well and your PIQ data shows you're doing well, you perhaps don't have to come in at the eight-week, nine-week visit. We can just call in and check so I'll say, look, if you're doing well, call me. We'll go over the data and save them a very long trip, and they can I can do the post-op business at my leisure. Yeah, that was a question I had for you was what what is the patient response? I mean, in every industry, everybody's fascinated with technology. I would imagine it's overwhelmingly positive in, in terms of having access to – or you having so much access to their own data. So can you tell us a little bit about what the patient response for this is? Well, the first thing they asked was, you know, does this track me? And, and which is kind of silly because my wife thinks about buying something and it shows up on my computer. So I, I think I'm already <laughs> being tracked, number one. Number two is my, my usual response is, oh, we don't need to do that. That's why we gave you the vaccine. Um, but uh, and now we'll get a chuckle with them. But I reassure them that you're not being tracked by this. It's totally blinded information and the information. Nobody's gonna be able to sit there and find out how well you're doing. It's more for you and more for us to help you. And uh, patients are very satisfied with it. Now, look. Some patients get a little nervous um, because you do have to go through the risks and the benefits, and some of them are, you know, get reluctant when they talk to a family member who always has an opinion without based on science. You know, I've heard things like, "Oh, I heard you can't get an MRI." No, you can't get an MRI. I can't get a CT. Yes, you can get a CT. Um, I can, you know, battery's going to explode. No, it's actually uh, pacemaker technology. It's sealed several different ways. So you're very safe. So there's, um, you know, a lot of myths that get when they talk to their neighbors and friends, but mostly. The people that decide to have it are anxious to have it put in. This is one of my so. least favorite topics when it comes to smart tech. Would but what what is has this impacted anything from a marketing standpoint? Uh, I, I, as I talked about a little bit before, I, I picked up robotic technology at the beginning of this year, and that's something that one of the first things that reps sometimes pitch to you when there's a new smart technology thing to come out and say, "Oh, your patients are going to start asking for this. You're going to be able to market this. You're going to increase your pa patient population." And for me, that's a that's an immediate turnoff if if the ref if the rep starts with how this 
this is going to impact me rather than how it's going to impact their patient. Uh, their, their, their pitch you know, could probably end at that point because I'm because I'm not really interested. But there's no doubt that at some point patients start asking about this. Patients tell friends about what they have. And uh, I was just curious if you've noticed anything from a from a marketing and patient engagement standpoint since you started using it and since there's been some some discussion about it. Yeah, I mean, you see people, I mean, it's it's different. I mean, when Mako first came out, you know, they would come in and pitch. They were only going to promote it at one or two hospitals in your area. You'll grow your practice. Maybe be coming in for a partial knee, but not everybody's a partial candidate. It will grow your total knee orthoplasty as well. And they had a whole marketing package. Zimmer's not really doing that. It's technology. Um, patients, there really hasn't been a direct-to-patient campaign right now. Um, but you see it on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, the, congratulations, Dr. X. You were the first one to do a smart persona IQ in this area. Um, does that get to patients and drive uh, volume? Perhaps not yet, but there are patients looking for it. And, uh, you know, as, as we show the benefits, I mean, look, we're going to have to, you know, pretty soon CMS is going to require us to give patient report outcome measures. And that's not always so easy to collect, but having something that automatically collects hopefully an equivalent that is, you know, then that's going to make your life as a physician easier. So I think physicians will seek us out because of the quality of the data and what you could predict. And, and speaking of potentially patients seeking you out, and it, I think it will get to the point where patients are going to ask for it. Is there anybody that you cannot do this on? Are there any contraindications for implanting this in a primary knee? I have not had one. Um, you know, it is a 58 millimeter stem. So if there's anybody that wouldn't benefit from the stem or their canal anatomy wouldn't allow it, I guess you couldn't do it. Um, you know, to me, a STEM is not a bad thing. A STEM is a good thing. My practice has a very large population of obese patients, and having a STEM extension actually improves the survivorship. So I think the STEM is actually a good thing. But I guess you have an old fracture or anatomic. Um, but we've uh, we've already designed a stubby STEM that's going to be much smaller uh, that should be able to fit all the anatomy. So we already have a workaround. Um, our current design right now, uh, you know, uncemented knees are actually very hot, and most companies have a, a design for uncemented knees is probably 25 to 40 percent of their of, of their uh, current volume right now. Um, we have a uncemented design in the works that's just going through the process of getting approved. But if you want an uncemented design, then that would be for you. Um, but that's it. So, Fred, as we talked about, there's 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 always people that are going to be potential skeptics, and there's a couple specific potential downsides of smart technology use in total knee replacements that I want to cover with you and kind of hear your thoughts on. So, cost is always something that we're going to hear about anytime we're adding any technology. And uh, you know, how do you how do you reconcile the potential for increased cost uh, to the medical system of incorporating smart technologies? You know, you know, certainly a lot. You know, what's cost? I mean, we did get an end cap, so you actually code and get reimbursed for the stem. That's coming, so that 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 helps out. Number one, number two is, and you know, right now it's uh, early technology. Um, as more and more get done, the cost comes down. And number three is, what's the cost of your prosthesis? Don't say it, but that's all part of the negotiating. Okay, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it it's it's cost is multifactorial. But, you know, not having to, I mean, I could argue costs in so many different ways, and you'll say either I'm a slick New Yorker saying, look, you know, if you're having less physical therapy, um, being able to monitor the patients, you save costs that way, you save costs for the patients by not having to travel, um, but does that institution really care about that? Um, I don't have to see patients as often. Um, I'm very comfortable if they're doing well to see them and monitor their data and make them come in for that yearly visit with an x-ray. Um, that allows me, I mean, as you know, uh, knee patients are the key to a pro to a practice, and not filling up with patients I've already operated on actually is good for my practice and may have financial benefits. So I try to stay away from costs because there's so many different ways you could argue it. 
Um, I could also argue that, uh, you know, you are allowed to bill for the monitoring. Okay, you have a, a bill for just collecting the data and also for uh, analyzing the data. And if you intervene and call the patient, you can bill for that as well. You know, there's remote therapeutic monitoring and remote, you know, patient monitoring. So these yeah, are I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. We 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 actually looked at um, not a persona IQ at my at my institution, but we looked at. Um, at my mobility, as which is the the Zimmer platform for patient tracking, that's not that's kind of dovetails with the robot as well and Persona IQ as well. If you're utilizing that, but we weren't really talking about that. We were talking more about, um, you know, patients have the ability to message you. Patients ha you have the ability to get some data from patients that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And the pushback from some of the surgeons was, so who's looking at all this data? Uh, what if there's data that pops up that's con with that's con that's concerning and I'm on vacation or my PA is supposed to look at it and is and doesn't doesn't get a look at it things like that um, there there was concern about who's going to be monitoring and who's going to be analyzing this data in real time um, and for, for me I'm, I'm I'm fortunate that I have physical therapists with that Scott used to be one of that monitor you know we kind of divide the patients up among the physical therapists they're all my patients as a surgeon but they each have a physical therapist that's attached to them that is in charge with being their primary contact point, but not every office works like that. So uh, how do you handle that issue? And uh, do you see that as being a problem of any kind? Not with the data that we're collecting. I mean, I'm my biggest fear if somebody sent, somehow sends me a message through Epic that says, uh, Dr. Kushner, so rather than calling the office, uh, my wound's red and, and it's draining and, and somehow I missed that message. That's sure. the stuff that scares me. If you mm -hmm. took 20% less steps one week, that's not earth shattering. And we have that sure. sort filter and the monitoring feature that actually red flags patients that aren't doing well. And look, we're exploring different models. There may be people that like to look at their own data and call the patients. There may also be people that we outsource and we monitor for you and just give you a report that every patient's are doing fine. These are also areas as we grow from a startup to a you know uh, well-established company, uh, seeing how we can best handle the, patient, the uh, physician's needs when it comes to data. When it comes to real-world monitoring, monitoring too, does that become a difficulty sometimes if patients are like, "Hey, it says that I, well, you know, that it says that my range of motion was 94 degrees yesterday, and it was 90, 97 yesterday. I'm really concerned about this. What are we going to do about this, Doctor Kushner?" Yeah, 94 versus 97 is probably not that big of a deal day over day. You know, let's see what it's like tomorrow. Does you know? I'm sure there's concern, uh, you know, about does this generate more phone calls? Is there does the patients have an access to all this kind of data? Generate concern about the patients from time to time? Have you experienced no, that at all? Not at all. In fact, it's the opposite. When they actually see their data, they like seeing how they compare. They get very competitive. Just like Peloton. When you go on the Peloton, you want to beat, uh, you know, you want to be a number one. So it actually sounds almost a Peloton effect where people are actually striving to be get the most out of their new replacement. I'm working so hard. Look how great I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I have some patients that text me saying, am I still in the 90th percentile? I mean, they really take it as their job that they want to be the best post-operative knee patient ever. I haven't seen a real hassle of people saying, you know, that nitpicky with the data. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I agree I with you. To be clear, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing, not a bad thing. I just, um, you know, like I said, I think these are, these are kind of issues that people, that people come up with sometimes that, um, that I, I don't know that I may not have, may not have thought about that, uh, that I think are interesting ones. How much of the data is able to be accessed by the patient themselves versus just being able to access by you as the operating surgeon? Or is there any crossover there? Or is there any data that is specific to just you being able to see if they were on a platform like My Mobility or does it even translate to My Mobility for the patient? Yeah, I mean, through the My Mobility, the patients do get some feedback. Most of the canary data right now is limited to the doctor's uh you know, logging in and checking the data themselves. Certainly we are working on a, a patient interface to allow them access, but not all access. 
How about for somebody like a like a rehab professional, like a physical therapist? Is there any uh, thought to giving access to that side of things, or is that something where the patient yes. would have to tell the therapist, "Hey, here's my numbers from the past week or whatever"? No, absolutely. We're we're looking to engage the physical therapist because we have been working on something called the DOBS, Doctor's Office Base Station, where I can actually turn on the device and actually run them through a set of tests. Hmm. You know, some of the things that we have trouble judging is you know weight bearing range of motion that's hard to get even in the office. Uh, while the patient's on the lying on the bed, but we really don't bend down on the ground and have them do a squat and measure their range of motion. Also, how they do when they go up and down stairs. So in our master plan, we already have this doctor's base station and getting it released, and even the physical therapist could have any run them through a set of uh, maneuvers that can uh, you know, evaluate stability, uh, uh, weight-bearing uh, uh, range of motion, and so forth. Um, you know, you got to limit that you can turn it on for short first, but if they go to the therapist and they turn it on and turn it on and turn it on, you can drain the battery. But that's the thought process is that we can actually use this to get more and more information and make the, the doctor's office base station available to healthcare professionals. Very cool. This is one. This is one that I know I've asked you about before. The addition to the stem. Um, you know, I'm I'm always concerned when I'm adding anything to the implant, uh, especially any 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 length of the stem. I know I I know I hate when I go to do a revision and I see the person's got even even a short stem. I feel like it always takes a, l- a little more time. It's a little more difficult for tibial component removal if we end up with revisions. Uh, if there's a, if there's a stem in place. So, uh, what do you say to people like me who have concerns about that? And to, to be honest, that's one of my primary limiting. Uh, limiting things on on uh, you know exploring something like persona IQ. Well, a couple things is that you know we went to the lab and actually cemented some in and then took them right out. And the amount of bone loss you have is very minimal. It didn't need uh, uh, a big to do to, to do a revision. Mm-hmm. So it's only 58 millimeters. And you know is that most of the time you'll go ahead and use your saw and free up the proximal tibia, and then with whether it's stacked osteotomes or a removal device, it comes out pretty quickly. I mean, it's only 58 millimeters. Um, and remember, you're taking out a usually you're not taking out a well fix. You're taking it out because you have a problem. Um, to me, a stem is a benefit. I mean, as a person that specializes in patients with very large BMIs, having a tibial stem is a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing. Osteoporotic bone, having a stem is a good thing, not a bad thing. So I'm not really worried about the revision, especially since the revision rates have been quite low. And we are coming out with a smaller stubby stem to satisfy people like you. <laughs> and I remember you saying that last time. You told me it wasn't a problem, but then tell me you were coming up with a solution. So I like that. No, that was good. No, that's not it. It's not necessarily a solution. It's just we, we know that not everybody wants to put one in. Sure. I mean, we know there are, and, and this gives you other options. I mean, we're also coming out with a version for an uncemented knee because uncemented knees don't have stems, but people mm-hmm. still want the technology. And the uncemented knees are often your younger, more healthy patients, right? That the mm-hmm. knee is going to be like the study, you know, look, you know, last 25, 30 years. So certainly we like to monitor them. And especially with uncemented knees, you know, you put on cemented knee and you have a little pain. The question is, is it osteointegrated? Well, you know, we'll incorporate new technology in the uncemented design that we can monitor osteointegration and migration. Agree with you. I, I, I do see when I I don't do uncemented knees, but when patients come to me with any problem with a cementless knee, I'm always wondering. And I, now I I will say that I, I don't think I've ever revised someone and found somebody to be loose with an uncemented knee that we didn't think was loose on the basis of imaging. So I don't know that the silent 
the silent loose knee. I've, I've not seen that be, be an issue with cementless technology, but, um, but, but to, to, to have something like that in cementless technology does, does seem to make sense. Any other, any other issues that have been brought up that, uh, that we haven't, that, uh, that, that have been, again, things that people who are skeptical or, um, uh, potential naysayers about this have brought up to you. I mean, I think the biggest obstacle sometimes is the hospital because, Everybody thinks that the data is worth billions of dollars. And if you ask them what, how much you're making off the data now, it's nothing. And, you know, for the most part, you know, 25 percent of these are being done in ASC and the patient's in the hospital for one day. Um, you know, the, so uh, I think that's the biggest thing is hospitals wanting to sit there and not put it in, not because of safety concerns, but more of they think the data is worth a billion dollars and they're trying to negotiate a bigger piece of the action. I think, I think that's a big thing. Rather than saying that this is good for patient care, it's, well, that's our data. You're taking our data, even though they're in the hospital for 23 hours. They have the advice for 20 years, they're in the hospital for 23 hours. But uh, but look, this is the world <laughs> we're in and with data and who owns the data. Sure. Now, speaking of having the device for 20 years, and you were also mentioning revisions earlier, and obviously this has not happened yet since it's such a new technology. But what is the thought or what's the plan for somebody that wants to continue tracking after 20 years and they have a, a well-functioning total knee at that time? Is the thought to do some type of swap or revision to to swap it out or just say, hey, you can't be tracked anymore and, and just live your life like you want to? Well, you know, 20 is a very conservative estimate. Obviously, we can adjust as time goes on. The less we monitor, the longer the bad thing, the, the, the device will last. Um, battery technology changes. Uh, it's already changed since we started first putting these things in. So, you know, we changed the size of the battery. So the more powerful, the smaller. That's how we're doing the stubby stem. I mean, we would have done a stubby one earlier, but we needed the size for the battery. So all these are changing. Um, but at this point, if you have an uncemented knee um, that's been in for 20 years, it's probably not going anywhere after 30 years. So it's done its job. So, Fred, what do you know about smart technology in, in other er, other areas of medicine and in, and in other places, and where do you think this is headed in the future? I know we're, we're focusing just on knee problems, but I know there's other areas of orthopedics and other areas of medicine where uh, smart technology has been and will be implemented. Sure. I mean, Canary Medical is more than just a knee company. We have IP and technology for hips already, and we also have for shoulders. And the FDA gave us expedited clearance. So those are certainly things that are working their way through the pipeline. We also have IP in other medical areas besides orthopedics. I mean, God forbid somebody has a heart stent. Okay, remember Bill Hunter, our CEO, his background is in the drug-eluting heart stent. But anybody, mm-hmm. that, any of your patients that have a stent and suddenly they get a little chest discomfort, what's the first thing they think of? Sure, that the stent's clotted off and... Right. So imagine now that you take your phone, you hold it to your chest, and it says your flow is 90%. Okay. Um, aortic aneurysms. If you're lucky enough to have a leak the day, you know, the, the day you go for your CT scan, your CT angiogram, you're lucky, but being able to monitor that. Um, uh, brain aneurysms. So we have all this great technology. So we're taking what we learned in the knee and bringing it to all aspects of healthcare. That's great stuff. Really interesting. So, uh, it, you know, if, as we put all this together, um, as as surgeons and therapists and uh, people who are involved taking care of knee problems, listen to this. What's really the take home messages that you have for people on uh, smart technology and total knee? Data is king. You don't know what you don't know until you look at it. The data is, you know, most things that uh, bring in technology don't go back. I don't see us not using robots. And I think the smart technology is going to expand. When I told you about every company kind of pushed this aside, now they're all looking at their own way to get smart technology, whether it's built into the device, if they can get around our patents, which will be tough, or if they put something in as a wearable. But we know other companies are looking at things to do. You know, we've talked about wearables and its limitations, but I think what we're going to see is 
collecting the post-operative data is as integral to the procedure as what we do intraoperatively and evaluating the patients preoperatively. Well, thanks a lot. That's great stuff, Fred. We really enjoyed having you having you on our episode tonight, and we appreciate you taking some time for us um, out of your out of your busy schedule. And uh, best of luck with this moving forward. Hey, thank you so much. Got to get you to put one in and tell me if you like it. <laughs> All right. So thanks again, Fred. We appreciate that. It was a great episode, and I think everybody's going to get a lot out of this one. As always, you can hit us up on our social media accounts, Twitter and Instagram, at the SKC Podcast. You can visit our SKC Podcast YouTube and Facebook pages, or you can email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode, episode 27. We're going to have Dr. Stephen Howell from Sacramento, California, and UC Davis, and he'll be discussing kinematic alignment and total knee replacement. The week after, we're going to have Dr. Gil Scuderi, also from New York City, another one of my mentors from Fellowship, talking about more conventional total knee alignment. So those next two episodes will go well together, and uh, we look forward to having you back uh, next week. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.